1: Hey, welcome back to this one's a doozy i'm kevin
0: and i'm Haley,
1: and we talk about stories of mystery true crime and folklore of the unusual unsettling and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today yesterday and tomorrow no long ago not tomorrow
0: <laughs> who knows maybe there'll be some maybe, crimes tomorrow for maybe us to someday
1: maybe someday we'll do that
0: talk about the crimes of the future
1: Yes. We'll talk about what's gonna happen. I can
0: consult somebody who might I'm sure. Yeah.
1: I'm sure we got some somebody.
0: There's no way we don't have a friend who knows how to do that.
1: (laughs) I just love that I said tomorrow. I don't know why.
0: (laughs) Maybe because it's midnight and when we're sitting down. That could be.
1: That could be. That's probably part of it.
0: It's not your fault though. I just finished this forty five seconds ago. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I have not proofread. So you guys are in for a real treat. This is yeah. super off the cuff.
1: We're gonna this is this is hot off the press.
0: Literally. Hot. Computer's still steaming.
1: Hot off the press. So first things first, mm. what are you drinking?
0: I am drinking some delicious cold water. Nice, ice cold water. Ice cold. Ice cold.
1: That's great. I'm drinking some blueberry tea because our house is freezing. I'm really
0: cold. I normally have a blanket wrapped around me, but I forgot to grab one. Oh, that's too bad. Just kidding. I'll get it for you. Thank you. (laughs) Staring at you with the (laughs) face like, please.
1: So yeah, that's what I'm drinking because it's freezing in here. And now you have your nice, warm
0: I do. I'm so happy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, my dear, do you have a feel-good fact for us today? Of
0: course I do. Do you want to hear this week's feel-good fact? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. All right, so... Some tarantulas keep frogs as pets. There's a species of tarantula called the Colombian lesser back tarantula that has been photographed with a tiny frog in its nest. <laughs> and it's a win, win, win for everyone. The frog gets protection in food. The tarantula gets a guarantee of keeping its eggs safe. Since the little frog will eat like ants and little bugs that may try and take its eggs. And <laughs> we get super cute video and photo footage <laughs> of this event. So it's a win-win-win. Wow. And so it's more like a, you know, normal, was it symbiotic?
1: Yes, it's a symbiotic. Relationship, I but I like yeah. to think
0: that they keep the little frogs as pets. Yeah. It's way cuter <laughs> that way.
1: That's pretty cute. I yeah. mean, some people probably go, Ooh, get all grossed out, but we think that's pretty cute.
0: I think it's cute in pictures. I think in person I would like scramble the other way. Mm. Like I respect you, Tarantula, but... From far away. Yes. Through a screen. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, what I had for the little feel good fact. Little Little friendships and unexpected (laughs) places. Yeah.
1: The equivalent of what, what's that movie from when we were kids with like the, I want to say it was like a dog and a.
0: Not narrowing it down. Most of the movies in the nineties were about a dog.
1: Well, that's true. But like it was an odd animal and a dog, like a dog and a lion or a tiger or something like that. Oh, that was
0: yeah.
1: I forget what it's called, but there was something like that. That was an odd symbiotic relationship. That everybody said, Oh, that's really cute. Anyway. Yeah. Then there's also the classics. Like the one uh Homeward
0: bound. Yeah,
1: homeward yeah. bound. Or the one where they don't actually talk, but Milo and Otis. Milo and Otis, yeah. That's you knew right where I was going with that. Of course I did. <laughs> All right. Well, (sighs) take us away, my love.
0: Okay. Well, after two weeks on Skinwalker Ranch, I decided that this week it would probably be in everybody's best interest, mostly my own, (laughs) to not do like something spooky-ooky, to not do something with like a crazy timeline. Um, So I thought that that's what I was picking. (laughs) Uh, And this one does have like a linear timeline, but in order to tell it. I've got to do a few, like, gymnastics tricks and, like, mm-hmm. a skateboard trick and then, like, a quick little scooter trick. That's good. To get through everything. So, parkour. Hardcore gotta, parkour.
1: you got to parkour through this, this story. This
0: one is bonkers in a different way. Okay. So I'm excited to tell it to you. Are you ready for story time, Kevin?
1: I am ready for a true
0: doozy. Well, good, because this one is a doozy. You ready? Yes. All right. <clears throat> so- on April 17th, 2006, the day after Easter Sunday, a man named Andrew Stock pulled up to start the day with his parents, Wayne and Charmin Stock, at their farmhouse just outside of the small town of Murdoch, Nebraska. Hmm. Andrew and Wayne were partners running their family farming business, the Stock Hay Company. When Andrew arrived to start another day, he was surprised to find that his parents' farm, which was usually bustling and busy with Wayne and others working through the morning chores, or with customers for Charmin's cake decorating business that she operated out of her home, was seemingly empty. The morning's edition of the Lincoln Journal-Star newspaper was still rolled up in their mail tube outside of their door, and when Andrew peeked his head into the kitchen to say good morning, he was still met with silence. He looked around outside a little more just to see if maybe his dad was just like off doing a task out of sight, but decided to go back inside when he still couldn't find him he went into the farmhouse and began calling out for his parents again. No response. Mm. He thought that maybe he should go check if his dad was maybe upstairs in his office where he did spend a lot of time managing the business and like financial stuff that went into their company. So he climbed the stairs to discover an absolutely gruesome scene. There at the top of the stairs was the lifeless corpse of his father laying face down in a pool of blood Carnage and viscera scattered literally from floor to ceiling, oh. up and down the halls, and in rooms up and down the halls. When he oh. saw this, Andrew quickly ran downstairs and outside in a panic, and he called 911 from his cell phone. At this point, Sharman was also still not accounted for. Hmm. His mother. Yeah. While he was waiting for police to arrive, he made several calls to friends and family in the area, asking if by chance she was visiting them or if they had spoken with her yet that day. He was met with only no's. Oh, no. Cass County Sheriff Deputy uh, Virgil Pogmeyer and Chad Mayfield, along with other first responders, went to work immediately upon their arrival to the farm. After doing like a, a casual sweep of the property outside, including peeking through the multiple outbuildings on the land, Sharman was still not accounted for. When they entered the home and eventually made their way into the couple's master bedroom, they discovered the body of Charmin stock between the bed and the wall. Oh, no. The first question on everyone's mind was, who on earth could do something so terrible to two of the most beloved people in the area? And why? Yeah. So the day before they were brutally murdered, the stock spent their day doing what they loved the most. They started off one of their favorite days of the year, Easter Sunday, singing and fellowshipping with their friends and family at their local church. They spent the early afternoon with at least a dozen family members um, at Charmin's mother's home. Her mom was kind of like aging Mm. and ailing, but they all still really tried to prioritize like gathering together. They ate, they laughed, and they watched the grandkids play. They then spent the evening enjoying dinner and an Easter egg hunt that Charmin had set up for her grandkids. And everybody was just happy, just living life. Everything felt right in the world. Towards the end of that night, Andrew got a call from his parents saying that his dog, Charlie, had snuck his way to their house because he knew that if he did that, Wayne and Charmin would feed him and probably play <laughs> with him. So Charlie knew what was up. So Andrew only lived about a mile away from his parents, so he was there within a few minutes to pick up his dog. He spent some time chatting and laughing before turning in with his fiance Cassandra, for the night. Nobody would have or could have expected that their whole world would be flipped on its head in only a matter of hours. Mm. The crime scene, as I mentioned, was a bloody mess. One interesting thing about the crime scene, however, was not only did police not find the weapon used in the murders, but they also quickly discovered that nothing appeared to have been missing. The stocks, though they never Mm. flaunted this, were actually millionaires. Not many people knew this about them, but investigators obviously needed to keep this in mind in case this was a potential motive for the killing. Yeah. Sheriff Sergeant Sandy Wires quickly got wind of what happened at the Stocks' home. And so she contacted two more Cass County investigators, Earl Skank Jr. and Rex Southwick, I think that's right, huh? to jump in in the all-hands-on-deck situation. All of the investigators on the scene at this point were not experienced at processing violent crime scenes because we, we're Nebraskans. Right. We We know... <laughs> that there are many a small town sprinkled throughout Hmm. the countryside and Murdoch at the time that this happened, I don't know if this is still the case now, but there was only like 260 or 270 residents in Murdoch and they didn't even live in Murdoch. They lived like two miles outside of town. Wow. Little town.
1: Yeah. So So this is very small town. Yes. Yeah. You know, everybody in this, in the community.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. So, Even though they were not experienced with processing violent crime scenes, they did take note of their first few observations about the bodies. Wayne and Charmin had both been shot at point-blank range in their heads, leaving them both very disfigured. Wayne had also been shot in the knee. They were both wearing pajamas and were barefoot, indicating that they were most likely attacked while they slept, despite the fact that Wayne had made his way out into the hallway. Charmin was holding the phone like, across her chest when she was found, which means she likely died while attempting to call for help. Oh, my gosh. That's so scary. As they swept the home inside and out, they found several items that appeared to have been left at the crime scene by the assailant. Outside, they found a small LED flashlight that appeared to have blood on it. They also found, just inches away from being run over by one of the, like, unmarked police cards that had arrived, they found a marijuana pipe. Oh. And... Yeah. Wayne and Sharman don't strike me, at least, <laughs> as people who have a, a marijuana pipe just laying around in right. their yard. But, okay, there's another thing. So, yeah. there were also shell casings from a 12-gauge shotgun inside, which helped investigators to identify the type of gun likely mm. used to commit the crime. Right. The trouble with this, though, is once again, the weapon hadn't been located either inside or outside of the home. Wow. The investigation team were in way over their heads. So yeah. they did what many small towns in the area did in a case like this. They contacted the commander of Douglas County Sheriff's Office Crime Lab. Uh, mm-hmm. His name's David Wayne Cafode. So Cafode was an absolute legend in the Omaha area and beyond. He was charismatic, thorough, and extremely well-respected in the community. Mm-hmm. He gained a reputation beyond Douglas County for being an affordable and fast-acting criminalist which is a fun word to say. That is a fun word. (laughs) He would help smaller communities quickly solve violent crimes. Hmm. Like, you know, these people don't, a lot of these communities don't have the resources and, and Douglas County did, and he was good at it. So he's like, yeah. So, um, he was insanely good in the world of forensics with his extreme attention to detail, Hmm. often noticing pieces of forensic evidence at the last minute that his peers may have missed. He was kind of like a golden child in the media Mm. also. He was regularly featured in articles and news bits that recognized him for his excellent work in his field. Wow. The trouble though, was that even though he was like larger than life, workaholic, great at his job, Mm -hmm. Omaha specifically only handled about 30 or so murder cases per year, as well as a few dozen non-fatal shootings and like stabbings and things like that. So the crime lab being as like decked out as it was, wasn't totally necessary. Right, Kofod and his boss, Sheriff Dunning, really wanted to expand it and grow it, which is why they began kind of extending their services out of Douglas County. So that makes sense. They extended all throughout southeastern Nebraska and western Iowa. Hmm. So at the time of the stock murders, Kofod had assisted in a total of 45 counties, which is pretty impressive.
1: That's, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a very large chunk of eastern... Nebraska, Western Iowa. I think there's mm-hmm. right around 100 counties in both states.
0: Yeah, um, between, probably. But, I didn't look that and, up. but and
1: so, yeah, that's... <laughs> someone will I mean, know that's, this. That's literally a quarter of all of the counties. Yeah, a lot. Like, yeah, <laughs> between both. That's... Yeah, for sure. That's crazy.
0: Well, and his work also often led to arrests and convictions in, uh, and sentences for crimes that he investigated. So, all in all, he was an important figure in the crime and forensics world at this time. Wow. Well, wow. So I don't want to get too down in the weeds, but Cafode and other members of CSI that he worked alongside of were contacted immediately. And as soon as they were, they made the one hour trek from Omaha to the farmhouse outside of Murdoch. Hmm. By the time they arrived on the scene, as is the case in many stories of murders in a small town, the crime scene was kind of a circus. People mm-hmm. had been in and out of the scene, which can complicate and contaminate an investigation oh, yeah. pretty fast. So Kafod and his team got to work right away. Kafod was immediately annoyed because it was <laughs> obvious from the get-go that this was not handled well. It was obvious that many investigators and people on the scene had walked through without wearing any, like, protective gear oh. to keep, like, you know, their yeah. fingerprints off of things right. and their footprints off of things and that sort of stuff. So he quickly took charge of the situation, and he kind of became like the go-to for any coroners or authorized personnel to go through Mm -hmm. before entering the crime scene. Smart. Hundreds of photos were taken and videos were taken inside and outside of the home, and they brought in a blood spatter analyst and other forensics experts to search high and low Mm -hmm. and to catalog the evidence so that it could be processed. One of the first major breaks in this part of the investigation came quickly. The blood spatter analyst noticed that the blood spray onto one of the walls was indicative that there wasn't just one assailant in these murders, but two. Mm. So when Wayne was shot and blood sprayed onto the walls, a person was standing in the line of the spray, creating what they called a blood shadow on the wall.
1: Oh, weird. Oh.
0: Which is horrifying, obviously, but can we talk about how metal blood shadow sounds? (laughs) If we ever start a metal band, band can we named, name it yeah. blood shadow? <laughs> it's not funny, but like creepy. That is crazy. They could see like yeah. the outline. Yeah. Cause the blood like blasted Obviously over another person. Someone is
1: yeah mm-hmm. standing there.
0: So yeah, crazy. So outside of the house, investigators discovered that a window screen had been removed and placed onto the side of the house. And that window, which led to the laundry room was partially opened mm. while all of the other windows had been closed, which means that that's,
1: that's how they got out.
0: That's how they got out. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm like stuttering. So Cass County officials initially disagreed that that was the point of entry because the front door was found open. They believed that whoever did this had to have somewhat knew yeah. the stocks in some way. Right. Um, I've sort of pointed it out a little bit, but the stocks are like super beloved in their town. Yeah. Everybody knows so them a lot of them. people, right. But with that, they believed that somebody who knew the stocks just walked in in a fit of rage and shot them in their home and left. The reason that they thought this was because nothing had been taken from the home. Right. And it just felt personal and not random, especially just the the nature of it being so gruesome and it being like in such close quarters, like how would they get in if it wasn't somebody who knew them, that sort of thing. They couldn't think of any other possible motives. But since the window screen really was the only thing out of place on the whole property, CSI believed that the killers entered through the laundry room window and then likely left through the front front door. Caffode basically decided at this point to kick everybody else out to do his thing, meticulously combing over every square inch of the scene, looking for any possible bit of forensic evidence that he could find. Hmm. Cass County went ahead and turned it over to CSI, and the Douglas County Mobile Crime Lab stayed on scene Hmm. for three full days gathering clues. Wow! While CSI was doing their work, Sergeant Myers and the investigator who was controversially assigned to this case began conducting interviews. Before I go into that, Hmm. I'm going to just spend a minute talking about Earl Skank Jr. because he was a serious character. Hmm. So I'll talk a little bit more about the book later, but the book that I got my information from goes into tremendous detail about this case. So I'll tell you more about that later, but a few bits of trivia about Skank are as follows. (laughs) So he came from a long line of law enforcement professionals. He spent his career working around Nebraska in various law enforcement roles before landing in Cass County. (laughs) While he was law enforcement by day, he was a country music singer by night.
1: Oh. I didn't
0: write it down, but his mm. stage name was something like Duke, the Nebraska Sandhills Country Cowboy or something like wow. that. And he actually managed to get a little bit of a following hmm. in like independently because right. he wrote his own music and he performed at like bars and events yeah. across the Midwest. Like even in Nashville, he performed a few times. Wow. So his reputation as, quote, a bit of a cowboy preceded him hmm. and he managed to get himself in trouble and reprimanded, suspended, <laughs> etc. Yeah. over his years at Cass County. Some of the reasons were, like, actually kind of funny, but most of them were pretty bad. Like, he dropped the ball big time investigating mm. a case involving a teen suicide. He was known to sort of, like, go rogue and conduct his own investigations and, like, come to conclusions on things without consulting anybody else. Oh, wow. He would often show up to work in a white cowboy hat and a big gold belt buckle. There was a time where he had worked as a wrestling coach at a high school in Cass County. He resigned from that job, though, because it was discovered that he left a note for either one of his students or like another wrestling coach peer Uh to find because he thought this person was stealing food out of the fridge. The note read, quote, if you touch my food again, I'll put a bullet in your fat melon head. Love, Coach Skank. Oh so gosh. it's not great at least he signed it I mean,
1: <laughs> you're going to say something like that better, better sign your name
0: so I say all of this to say that him being assigned to this case was met with a lot of controversy on one hand some friends and family of the stocks were relieved to have a familiar face on the case because they believed that that familiarity would yeah. inspire and kind of push investigators to do their best right. to give them closure but then on the other hand A lot of people just didn't trust him, which also makes sense. Right. They didn't know like he's kind of a loose cannon and the integrity of it, I suppose, came into question a little bit too.
1: He literally sounds like a couple of TV characters that I can.
0: He sounds like he's made up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He really does. (laughs) So shortly into interviews, one name kept coming up as a person who may have a motive to harm the stocks. Matt Livers, their 28 year old nephew. So in Mm. the few years leading up to the murder, Livers had been living with Wayne's elderly and widowed mother, Lorene Stock, in a home just up the road. This home had been in the family for a long time, and Livers was convinced that he was the right person to inherit the home once Lorene had passed. Wayne and Charmin disagreed, though. They believed that Livers was kind of like a freeloader who was taking advantage of Lorene Mm. and eventually convinced Lorene to kick him out of the house. Oh. Livers was actually there for Easter celebrations the day before the murders. So siblings of Sharman wondered if maybe Livers got into an argument with one yeah. or both of the stocks at the party and then returned later that night and killed them in his fury. Hmm. Family also believed that in addition to intellectual challenges that he had, that they some of them believed that he was using drugs. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have any actual proof of this, but this definitely piqued the interest of Myers, who remembered the Marijuana pipe they found in the driveway. Right. So all of this information was gathered on the first night of interviews. Myers thanked the family for their time and for their help, and they called it a day. Skank, however, was not done. Mm. He took it upon himself, along with a Nebraska State Patrol officer named Bill Lambert, to keep the investigation going. He got Matt Livers contact information from Matt's mother and asked if he would be able to answer a few questions. Livers agreed and soon he was picked up by an unmarked police car by Skank and Lambert. They decided not to go too hard with the questioning initially, but they noted that Livers didn't seem to be very bothered by what was going on, despite claiming that the murders had made him feel scared and sad. Mm -hmm. Livers was adamant that he never got into seriously heated arguments with his aunt and uncle, but said that two of his cousins might have, Nick and Will Sampson. Mm -hmm. They asked him for a DNA sample, to which he agreed, and then they sent him on his way. They still didn't have much, but they were trying. Right. Within a few days of the killings, an unexpected tip came in. A couple who delivered newspapers in the area claimed to have seen a vehicle that they didn't recognize, parked about a mile from the stock residence at a cemetery around 345 in the morning. They said it didn't appear that anyone was in the vehicle, but as soon as they pulled away, the couple was stunned when a pair of headlights came flying at them from behind. They braced for impact when suddenly the car floored it, speeding past them over the center line. It was the same vehicle they'd seen at the cemetery. Uh The couple only saw a short glimpse of the driver's face before the car disappeared out of sight. During their interviews, they said they they were able to basically give a brief description of what the car looked like. Pretty vague. Sure. They also recalled that when they had pulled up to the Stocks house to do their delivery of the newspaper that they saw a light on upstairs, When they dropped the paper off around 4 a.m., which they'd never seen before at their house. Their lights were always off. Yeah. So the hunt was on for the mystery car. Right. While that was going on, investigators made connections with people who knew Livers and began asking them some questions as well. Hmm. It turns out Livers had recently lost his job, getting fired for kicking a hole in a door during a moment of frustration. Hmm. Digging a little further, Livers had only worked at his most recent place of employment for four months. And during that time, he'd been reprimanded several times for being combative, having an explosive temper and failing to complete tasks. The day of the stock's funeral was a very sad day for the Murdoch community. More than a thousand people came to pay their respects, to reminisce on their happy times with Wayne and Sharman and to try and kind of grieve and puzzle together over how this could have happened to such great people. People came from all over the country. Yeah. They, like, had undercover security, and this was a big deal. Yeah. So, meanwhile, investigators Skank and Lambert were pretty focused on Livers as the prime suspect at the moment. On day eight of the investigation, Livers agreed to be questioned again, but this time, they brought him to the Cass County location where they'd conduct a more formal interrogation. Mm Mm-hmm. This time around, the team was not taking it easy on livers at all. They began with a polygraph and they moved into a more distressing approach. Mm. Towards the end of 11 hours of questioning, they told him that he failed his polygraph and then began just like ripping into him. Mm. Saying things like, you're in the frying pan now and like cursing at him and cutting him down. They even said to him that due to the nature of the crime, it wouldn't be shocking if the death penalty was on the table, especially if the murderer gets caught not cooperating. Eventually, Livers felt backed into a corner enough that he confessed. He said that he had done it, that he killed Wayne and Charmin. They pressed him further because they knew that a second person was involved. Yeah. They said polygraphs don't lie, which I'm going to hold my opinion on that (laughs) for the time being. (laughs) But anyways, the three investigators kept grilling him until he finally cracked and told them that his cousin Nick had helped him, but his other cousin Will had nothing to do with it. Livers said they took Will's car and he gave them a sort of play-by-play on what happened on the night of the murders. And with that, he and Nick were arrested and tossed into the Cass County Jail. Hmm. Both Samson and Livers tried multiple times to reclaim their innocence and like recant the confession. With Livers saying that he felt pressured to confess, and scared, and so he just did. But things just kept moving forward. Yeah. So, officers were thrilled to call many of the relatives of the stocks to tell them that they got a confession from Livers. They filled them in on what he had told them, and that was that. Oh, man. So, you know how I told you how they were trying to locate a potential getaway car? They gave a vague description Mm -hmm. and all of that. So, uh, Nick's brother, Will, was contacted and said he wouldn't mind having his car searched and, like, ruled out. Yeah. So he naively agreed to that, and his car was sent from Lincoln to Omaha, where it was discovered that Samson had had his car professionally cleaned the day after the murders. He, he did work in construction, though. And so it okay. wasn't odd for him to do that somewhat, like, regularly, mm-hmm. but this still felt important enough for investigators to follow up on. Right. Right. They tested the car with like a chemical to check for blood and like gunpowder residue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but inis- initially, the results came up inconclusive. They showed that the car was positive for iron, but it didn't necessarily mean it was from iron and blood. Hmm. So they put it in an impound lot until it could be kind of further tested. Yeah. So I'm going to hop around a little bit, but it's all going to tie together in a neat bow. Okay. So the first hearing for Matt and Nick was quick and to the point. Neither of the men could afford private defense, so they were both appointed defense attorneys and both were denied bail. At this point in the story, Cass County officials were beginning to feel frustrated and desperate because even though they'd made an arrest, they had absolutely no solid evidence tying yeah. either of these two to the crime. They even had people come forward and say that they could offer an alibi. Ooh, but they ignored wow. it. But What? Because they they had a confession, so they pressed on. And they also, at the same time, were pressuring Cafode and his crew to keep pushing harder on their end with, like, the forensic evidence. Right. And so that's when an incredible break in the case would come. Cafode did another sweep of Will Sampson's car. The initial sweep, turns out, didn't search uh, everywhere in the car. It was there under the driver's side dashboard, like, kind of near the steering wheel, mm-hmm. that a minuscule drop of blood was discovered. DNA testing would confirm that the blood in Samson's car had belonged to Wayne Stock. Hmm. This was the smoking gun that they needed to corroborate Liver's confession, tying him and Nick Samson to the murder. Yeah. So jumping back to the first few days of the investigation, Sergeant Myers had her best detective face on, I think, that day. She was, like, on it. Hmm. So she was doing a sweep through the Stock's kitchen when she noticed something out of place. It was like a gold men's ring. Upon examining the ring, it was very clear that it didn't belong to the stocks. Hmm. It had an inscription on the outside of the band that said, quote, love always Corey and Ryan. So who are Corey and Ryan? Oh, Initially, they believed that Ryan may have been Matt Livers friend, Ryan Paulding. But after searching Paulding's phone records, there was no indication at all that he had even been in contact with Livers anywhere near the time of the hmm. murders.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, so the ring probably didn't belong to him. Yeah. So the trail was going cold once again, but they didn't stop there. Cafod handed off the responsibility of tracking down the origins of the ring to a woman named Christine, I think it's pronounced Gabig, who was a trace evidence expert, which is like a wow. really cool job. Yeah. So she got to work upon examining the ring more closely. She discovered that on the inside of the ring was the jewelry manufacturer's trademark. The trademark had belonged to two businesses in the United States, one of which had closed in 1994, Hmm. meaning it had to have come from this place. Right. So she followed up with the other one, A&A Jewelers, uh, which was in Buffalo, New York. Gabig called A&A Jewelers and was connected with the owner right away. Unfortunately, Hmm. though, the owner, Mary Martino, informed Gabig that she had actually called her on the final day of business. They were like a day or two away from Wow. liquidating everything and yeah. closing down phone lines. And she said, I, I don't have the time to help. Like yeah. I just laid off all of my employees. I'm trying to get this just done and over with. Oh man! And yeah. so she also told them that they distribute to over 3000 retailers. Yeah. So there's no way I could narrow this down for you. So sorry, but get big awesome lady that she was persisted saying that the ring is tied to a gruesome homicide And that this was one of the very few leads that they had. So if you could just, please just check a little bit. right? So Martino, sensing the urgency and the importance of this ring and discovering who it belonged to, she got to work also attempting to figure out who it belonged to. After three days, Gabig got a call from a very excited Martino who told her that she found who the ring was sold to. A young woman at Walmart in 2004. Oh my gosh. Here's the kicker though. Yeah. The ring wasn't sold at a Walmart in Nebraska, but in Wisconsin. Oh. To a woman named Corey Zastro. Hmm. Police in Dodge County, where Zastro was from, were quick to be helpful when they got the call from Cass County. Hmm. They rolled up to Zastro's residence. Turns out Corey was a student who also worked a job. She had no criminal history. Her car didn't match the description of the vehicle seen fleeing the area around the night of the murder. And both Zastro and her mother both had airtight alibis for the mm. night of the murder. It was yeah. Easter. Right. They had Easter plans with people. Right. You know, Right.
1: they were busy doing they stuff. They were
0: busy doing yeah. stuff. And it's 500 miles away. Right. they are not gonna make a 500 mile <laughs> trip. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So they both insisted that not only did they not know a single person in Nebraska, but neither of them had ever even been there. Right. They explained that the ring was a gift that Corey had given to her former boyfriend, Ryan Krenz but that they were no longer together and she just let him keep the ring. Yeah. They like split up amicably. Yeah. You keep the ring, that sort of thing. So now they needed to get in contact with Ryan Krenz. Okay. So the story is going to blast off from here. Okay. Hang on, like strap yourself to the seat. Yes. Get ready to go. So, uh, let's see. So Ryan was a typical farm kid who worked on his family dairy farm. He participated happily in annual hunting trips. He worked hard and he played hard. Hmm. When police came and chatted with him, he basically said the exact same thing that Corey had said about their relationship and about the ring. He told them that he hadn't seen the ring for months, but that he was certain that he stashed it in the glove compartment of his truck. Hmm. The police were very familiar with Ryan's truck already, though. Do you want to know why? Oh, why? Because this truck that he loved and took great care of had been reported stolen the same week that the stocks were killed. It had been found abandoned. Do you want to know where it had been found abandoned? No. You don't want to know? Yes, I do. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Yes, I do. It
0: had been found abandoned in Louisiana. What? Louisiana. On April 18th, just a couple of days after the murder. It had some minor front end damage and a few things had been taken from it, but it was 100% Ryan's truck. They found it 1,200 miles away. As luck would have it, the two people believed to be responsible for stealing Ryan's truck were actually already in police custody back in Dodge County, Wisconsin. Weird. Okay. This is, it's going to get weirder, man. You're going to be like, what? Okay. On June 6, 2006, Cass County investigators made their way to Dodge County, Wisconsin to question these two. 17-year-old Jessica Reed and 19-year-old Greg Fester, two teenagers who had recently had quite an adventure together. (laughs) Uh, They were both questioned individually. Yeah. And investigators were shocked at what the teens had to tell them, specifically Jessica.
1: Hmm.
0: So it turns out that these two had not only admitted to stealing Ryan's truck, but they claimed no, who killed the stocks. And spoiler alert, it was not Matt and Nick.
1: (laughs) What? Yeah. At this point, anything's possible. Though. Anything is possible. <laughs> I'm just like it could have been
0: Charlie the dog, right? Who knows? Oh, Charlie!
1: No, we wouldn't put that on poor Charlie. Charlie
0: he, just wanted a snack. He just wanted a snack. That's all. <laughs> okay, so both Jessica and Greg were kind of troublemakers. Mm-hmm. Their childhoods were at different times, both fraught with drama and trouble of various kinds. So the two became sort of like the perfect storm when they met. Greg Fester suffered from hyperactivity and depression. And he had quite the string of legal charges over 20 under his belt. He was kind of like a punk kid in a small town who dressed the part. Yeah. He would wear like spiked dog collars and have either like really bright hair, like black hair and like Mm -hmm. nail polish. And he'd like behave really erratically in public to like try and scare the normies, you know?
1: Yeah. Classic. Yeah. He
0: like loved doing that to be clear. None of that stuff about his appearance has anything to do with crimes. Right. Like, I do that too, sort of, in my own special yes, in way. In your own
1: special, cute way.
0: I don't want to scare people, or do I? <laughs> but I get it. So, like, I'm not saying that they are connected, but just giving you some background on yeah. old Greg. Old Greg. Old Greg. His crimes picked up pace. And by 2005, he had a pretty serious charge that he was facing when he ran into the estranged mother of his child that he wasn't allowed to see. Hmm. So this actually happened on school property. He grabbed her by the wrist and held a knife to her stomach, threatening to kill her. This led to him being charged with threats with a dangerous weapon and being expelled from school. Uh, He would only face a year of probation. Um, And he also had been in and out of facilities receiving psychiatric care. Hmm. Jessica's life started out much differently than Greg's in that she had a great childhood until her parents got divorced when she was a teenager. Hmm. Her mother was sort of like a drifter, moving towns pretty regularly, which may have caused some of, like, the instability and, like, the feelings of unease that Jessica was facing. This was all made worse when Jessica dropped out of high school and fell deeper into, like, drug use and Mm just sort of like a lot of real dark things kind of feeding that thing, you know? So when she met Greg, she was sort of like ripe for the picking. Mm -hmm. The two hit it off immediately, bonding over their shared feelings of feeling like unloved and misunderstood and that sort of thing. They began seeing each other regularly. They began like using drugs and continuing both together and separately getting into trouble. Hmm. This would turn out to be a deadly combination the pair were bored with life and decided almost on a whim to make a run for it. They packed a few things, some drugs, a guitar, and some clothes, and then Jessica caused a diversion outside of a store where the two then made off with their first stolen car. Wow. They sort of like snuck around town, mm-hmm. seeing what else they could steal. They ended up stealing and abandoning another car, as well as some money and a 12-gauge shotgun. Ooh. They hid for a few hours before ditching the vehicle they'd stolen. When they found a nice new truck that they were interested in, uh, Ryan's truck, yeah, yeah. which Greg hotwired, and then they were off. So they initially wanted to go see the ocean together, but after the thrill that they had experienced with like the car thefts and mm-hmm. stuff, they decided they'd rather go on a crime spree. They like really liked wow. that feeling of yeah. like we're stealing stuff and we're breaking things. Modern you know, day
1: Bonnie and Clyde. Look oh yeah, at them.
0: always. <laughs> They crossed over into Iowa, where they broke into two more houses. They stole $300, a shotgun, ammunition, and they vandalized at least one of the homes. So on April 16th, Easter, the pair made their way into Nebraska. When they made it into Nebraska, they noticed that the rural area that they had happened upon made it pretty hard to continue their spree. Hmm. Towns and homes were very far apart from each other. They began to get frustrated when Jessica suggested that they just pick the next next house that they see. No. Since they don't know where they are or how much longer they'll have to wait for a new place to hit if they skip the next house. Yeah. Greg, who was kind of like coming down from a high, disagreed, and this caused the two to kind of like go silent. Jessica had become bored and irritated, so she just started like casually digging around in the glove compartment of the truck. Mm-hmm. She'd searched it earlier for money or anything valuable, but initially didn't see anything. But now that there wasn't much else to do, she kind of felt around and looked around a little more closely. And that's when she saw the ring that Corey had given to Ryan. Wow. She put the man's ring on her tiny little thumb and moved on with her day. (laughs) She kind of forgot about it. Yeah. And as it got later and later, Jessica reiterated her point. They just need to pick a place to rob and they just need to just go for it. So when they saw a white farmhouse surrounded by outbuildings and acres of land, pretty Mm. isolated, and it appeared that nobody was home since all the lights were out and neither of them saw vehicles parked outside, they decided that would be the next place they would hit. Each of them grabbed a shotgun to bring with them in case of dogs or anything unexpected on the property, and they crept quietly towards the home. They looked for a way to get in and quickly found a window to a laundry room unlocked. Yeah. They opened it and climbed in and scanned their surroundings. They began like quietly rifling through the main floor of the home. And that's when Jessica dropped the ring at some point in the Mm -hmm. kitchen. Right. They both froze when they heard the sound of somebody snoring upstairs, realizing that they weren't alone in the house. Right. Greg took the lead and shotgun in hand, led Jessica to the second floor of the home where the master bedroom and the source of the snoring was. Greg pushed open the door to the bedroom and quickly flipped on the light, stirring Wayne awake immediately. Oh my gosh. Why? Literally, I don't even know if these two know oh. why they did this. It's so confusing to me. Yeah. So as Wayne quickly stood up and began charging Greg, Jessica yelled at him to do something. That's when Greg fired the first shot at Wayne, which struck him in the knee, mm-hmm. blowing it out. But Wayne obviously knew the danger he and his wife were in, and he's probably like the adrenaline of it, you know? So he continued to do what he could to wrestle the gun away from Greg, moving the struggle from the bedroom and into the hallway where the second shot was fired. This time by Jessica and right into Wayne's face. Greg fired one more shot at Wayne's head to make sure that he was dead. This was the shot that would create that blood shadow Mm -hmm. on the wall. Then they calmly walked back into the bedroom where they found a scared and terrorized Charmin who was screaming and trying to make a call for help. Greg walked over to her, took aim, and shot her in the face. The next part is really upsetting, so a quick trigger warning. You might want to skip ahead 30 Mm. seconds. So it didn't kill her right away. Oh, no. She screamed like her whole face was gone. Oh! She screamed out in pain. And for whatever reason, that scream really affected them. Yeah. So instead of ransacking the house, seeing you know, what they could get out of it, they took off for the front door, dropping shell casings. They dropped their flashlight. Yeah. And then when they got to the car, they're kind of like scrambling to get in. And the marijuana pipe rolled off the seat and into yeah. the driveway. Oh, geez. So then they got into the vehicle and they drove off. They eventually made their way South where they Mm. ran out of money and gas in Louisiana. They walked to a nearby gas station where they had planned to con the nice little old lady (laughs) out of either money or gas, but instead convinced her to buy them a bus ticket so that they could go stay with Greg's cousin up in Michigan. The woman took, I know the freaking nerve, man. (laughs) I want to like smack these kids around so bad. Yeah. So naughty. I know. So the woman took compassion on these two kids. She just thought that they were, like, young and in love, trying to have an adventure. Yeah. So she bought them the tickets and sent them on their way. When they arrived in Michigan, they discovered that Greg's cousin didn't live there anymore. Oh, my gosh. Greg. So they just kind of, like, rolled over and gave up. Jessica called her mom who came and got them and brought them back to Wisconsin where they were arrested for the theft of Ryan's truck and a few other charges. The Dodge County law enforcement team was unaware of the extent of the seriousness of their crime spree until the confession was made. Wow. Yeah. So Jessica literally was the one who told them all of this. Greg admitted to nothing besides some like theft and other smaller charges. Yeah. But he eventually relented and admitted that Jessica was telling the truth investigators discovered even more evidence against them when they discovered Jessica's diary. Oh. There were several concerning entries, but one in particular caught their attention. On page 13 of her diary, Jessica wrote, quote, I killed a man. He was older. I loved it. I wish I could do it all the time. Oh my God! If Greg doesn't watch it, I'm just going to leave one day and go do it myself. He's not communicating with me very well for some reason anymore. I know who I am kind of now. I just have to get there first. I miss the South. It's cold up here. End quote.
1: My goodness. I got goosebumps when you read that. They also found
0: (laughs) an empty cigarette container with a 12-gauge shotgun shell casing and another note basically saying I killed someone and I loved it. So she sucks.
1: Wow. Yeah. She... She's like 17. She has some... Problems, My goodness.
0: I always just wonder, I've read so many stories and I've watched so many documentaries and series about different criminals. Yeah. And it's so baffling to me how these kinds of people like always seem to find each other. Yeah. And like, how do these people always find each other? Oh. So many like couple killers or like brothers or cousins or like random friends that meet. Right. Super randomly. Right. And it like escalates into something awful. Oh. I've never understood how that's possible, that these people seem to find each other. Okay, so investigators now have all of this hard evidence, but there was still a big problem. How are Matt and Nick tied to Jessica and Greg? Cass County insisted that they had to have been involved somehow, but how? Hmm. They showed Jessica and Greg photos of Matt and Nick, and neither of them recognized them. Eventually, it became glaringly obvious that yeah. Matt and Nick were in no way involved in Wayne and Sharman's murders. Mm. An attorney representing Matt and Nick backed this up in court later on. yeah, they reviewed the evidence that they had against Matt. And not only is it obvious on the recorded interrogations that he was coerced and almost like, threatened into confessing, right. but it was obvious that Matt's intellectual and mental impairments that he had, and like elevated his desire to like comply and agree oh, with whatever yeah. the officers were saying. Oh. I've I read through some of the transcripts of it and it's really upsetting. They're basically yeah. like, So then you did this, right? Oh, and Matt's man. like, Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just like making a murderer.
0: It is. Like that it's completely, yes. Yeah. So the guy who wrote this book has talked a lot about coerced confessions. Yeah. It's really scary. It is really scary and really sad. Yeah. Matt had an IQ of like 63. And he had some other, like, things that make you wonder, like, what other developmental things that he may have been struggling with. Right. And they totally took advantage of it. It's really gut-wrenching. So, he also had, I told you this before, but he tried to recant his confession. Right. But they ignored that. And I don't think that they recorded that he recanted. Mm. I may have missed that while I was reading, but I don't think that they acknowledged that he recanted and that Nick also had said, no. Right. I didn't do this. Right. So not only that, but when they reviewed the stock's will, all of their possessions were to be split evenly amongst their three living children. Hmm. Matt's name wasn't mentioned anywhere. So he had no financial motive for killing his aunt and uncle. Right. So Nick was initially released like almost right away, but Matt was still being held and he could have been (sighs) facing the death penalty. Oh geez. But eventually, thankfully, I'm not going to make you wait. They did release Matt. That's good. So in January... Of 2007, Jessica and Greg were each charged and tried for two counts of murder, to which they both pled guilty on each count. Yeah. Despite their best efforts to try and prove that they were remorseful in an attempt to gain a lighter sentence, the judge was pretty much completely unmoved and sentenced each of them to two life sentences to be served consecutively. They tried to appeal, claiming that the sentences were too harsh, but the appeals were denied and the sentences stand. Yeah. So the book, Bloody Lies by John Farrak, I apologize if I'm saying that name wrong, is where I got my information this time around. So he was a journalist for the Omaha World Herald who'd been covering this case from the beginning. Yeah, He had this like nagging question even after Matt and Nick were released and after Jessica and Greg had been sentenced. How and why was Wayne Stock's blood found in Samson's car if these two weren't involved? Yeah, that is odd. Very strange. So once FBI got involved, following a hot and steamy tip that they'd been given, the truth would be revealed. Oh, my goodness. Remember, there's still
1: more to this? There's still oh more. Gosh. This
0: one's nuts. Yeah. So remember how I said that Cafode was known as like the golden child who was so good at his job because of his intense attention to detail and yes. that he was always like able to find pieces of evidence at the no. last minute that everyone else seemed to have somehow missed? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, wouldn't you know it, Cafode seemed to have been scheming with the stock case. Oh. Trying to maintain his quick crime scene processing rate and his glowing reviews from neighboring counties that he offered his services to, he didn't actually search Samson's car a second time. He only said that he did. Oh, no. Turns out that Cafode had planted a small amount of Wayne's blood to try and get the case closed. Oh, no. Yep. That is like... Just so slimy, can let's just take oh, a second to bask in that.
1: I feel gross knowing about that.
0: That's like i'm I'm had it not been for that oh. ring, and Christine Gabig, the mm-hmm. really lady with the cool job, calling right when she called, yeah, if she called a day or two later, we may have never known right. and Matt livers could have been given the death penalty, yeah. Isn't that oh nuts? He goodness. could have totally gotten away with this. Yeah. So anyway, in 2010, Kafod was sentenced to 20 months to four years in prison on charges of falsifying evidence, serving only a year and a half. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. He maintains his innocence to this day. He said, I did not play any evidence. There's also other people yes. who have uh, espoused, perhaps, yeah. that there are other cases that he may have tampered with. Right his integrity either way has been called into question. If any of his stuff was legitimate or not, who knows? Right. Was it something that he was really good at? And this one case just, he really got hung up on. So he did the wrong thing or was this a pattern that we Hmm. uncovered part of, you know,
1: it does beg the question, which obviously like maybe you, you just don't have time to get into. It does beg the question. If somebody else planted something,
0: Well, he was the only one who had gone to the impound where the car was. And there's like photos of him there. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. He was the only one who had processed it the second time around. There were multiple people the first time. Yeah. There's a lot more that goes into this. Sure. Go read the book. I I bought it today and I have it on (laughs) Audible. So (laughs) knock yourself out if you want to get all the deep. I actually recommend it. Yeah. I have a sidebar on that for the end. Okay. Remind me. So let's keep going. Okay. So as for Livers and Samson, they sued the heck out of everyone involved in the coercion of liver's confession. And they actually won. Oh yeah. I would, I would expect so. Yeah. The two were awarded a little over $2 million, which they split. Hmm. So ending on the note of kind of like the legacy of Wayne and Sharman, uh, the two had been like really cute, really in love with each other in the book. You can see like pictures of them on their wedding and like pictures of them with their family. Yeah. You can also see crime scene photos. So if you're squeamish, maybe don't do the Mm. hard copy of the book. Sure. Just a little warning. So they were loved by everyone who knew them. They were busy, honest, loyal, and hardworking. They leave behind three children and a handful of grandchildren who miss them dearly, but are each doing their part to carry on the family business, honoring the Stock name. Andrew Stock is still plagued by the horror scene that he walked into that Monday Mm -hmm. morning after Easter. I'm sure. He's thankful that in some ways justice has been served, but he'll never forget and never truly heal from what they went through. Yeah. I'd also like to note... That there are like petitions, like I don't know if it's change.org or what that are saying that Jessica and Greg were also coerced and that there's
1: hmm.
0: I don't I mean the journal entry to me is all that I would have needed to be like yeah. guilty. But <laughs> yes, but yeah, there there are people who are trying to like inspire people to push for them to get another a chance at appeal. Mm. And I don't know if they have another appeal with the sentences that they got. I didn't look into that. Sure. Um, but yeah, there are people who are like cheering specifically for Jessica that like she was influenced by Greg and she was probably coerced and kids all write weird, dumb stuff in their diaries. So like, how is that evidence? You know? So those are interesting. If you want to look at those, you should Google them because they're everywhere.
1: That is very interesting. And I have very mixed feelings about that, but I think the strongest feeling I have is you, you commit a. Insane crime, and then don't feel bad about it. She, like, in fact,
0: she said she loved it. Right. I can't wait to do it again.
1: That's right. She sounds dangerous. That to sounds me. right. Like that sounds like a person who, even if they can be, yeah, even even if they can be rehabilitated, it's almost like too risky to, I'm,
0: I'm, like reintroduce. I think, yeah,
1: I mean that's that's. I think it's
0: case by case. That would
1: be case by case, and I would typically not say that. Just yeah. I know. Really I know that
0: you wouldn't, but good to make that clear. But
1: that is like a, like, it's just scary enough. I mean, you have two people who picked a random house. Like what's that horror movie? Uh, the, S- the strangers or something mm-hmm. like that where like the reasoning was literally you were home, you were home. And like,
0: we wanted to terrorize you.
1: That movie obviously is way more like, that's way more wicked <laughs> yeah. and evil. I don't uh, know, man. Then, than walking into just rob a house and then just happening to decide to kill some people. Like they weren't, they didn't go in there with the express intent to terrorize somebody. They yeah. just happened to do that, which is still really, 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 really bad.
0: Sometimes I wonder though, if Greg like really thought that people weren't home.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Because it's like the grabbing of the guns, I didn't see it mentioned in any of their other crimes that they brought the guns with them to go rob. Mm, yeah. And so why did he bring the guns? He said it was in case there were dogs or like anything else unexpected on the property. Yeah. But I still think, yeah, I still think maybe part of him knew. And the fact that he like busted into their bedroom.
1: Yeah. That's very odd when you don't have to do
0: that. No. He's- like if he would have gone into the office, it said in the book that uh, there was like a pile of cash. Yeah they literally could have just grabbed several thousand dollars and bebopped their way out of here. Yeah. And the stocks would have been fine financially. Right. It would have been annoying. Right. Sure. Like that's not your money. Please don't take my money, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: you know, but they wouldn't, they would be alive.
1: Right. And Instead, they wouldn't have died
0: in such a horrifying right. way.
1: Instead they did the worst possible thing that they could have done. Right. Which is disgusting. I know. I'm like why turn the, the whole, that whole scene. It's why? So why go into that room? Why turn the light on? Why make a big scene? Like, yeah. Why not just aim your gun at somebody and just like threaten them? There's so many other still bad things, but like mm-hmm. so many other better bad things to do than yeah. all that. It just seems so unreasonable.
0: Well, and the fact that like I guess when they had heard the snoring, Greg just kind of like started walking up the stairs, and Jessica just followed him. Hmm. And like they went straight, they made like a beeline for the bedroom. So I just wonder what was he thinking? Yeah. Like there's no, you can't tell me that this was like a, they didn't, I don't think they tried to claim self-defense, but you can't tell me that it was like, right. we were scared and we reacted. It's like, no, you could have left. You
1: could have just, yeah, exactly. Or
0: snuck around quietly. Yeah. Under the guise of the, like the snoring, like you've got a good cover right. to sneak around because there's somebody snoring. Right. Charmin's obviously used to it if right. she's sleeping through it. So there are just so many oh. ways that this could have not had to go down yeah. this way.
1: It just makes me sad to think that. This is a
0: very sad one.
1: Yeah. That's the way that it all went down. And like you said, Andrew has to live with
0: mm-hmm. the, seeing the, the
1: visual it. that he had to see. Well,
0: and Jessica said in court yeah. when she was kind of like trying to make a plea that. Charmin scream Mm. she's like i wake up in a hot like in like a sweat every night i'm haunted by it it's like well
1: good you should be yeah honestly that's that's justice of of a of a deeper sense Mm -hmm. for now for now but
0: yeah the arguments also made that they were so young at the time of the crimes and at the time of the sentencing that like Their brains aren't fully developed. How culpable can they be? That's a gray area too. I think that's case by case as well. Yeah, there are plenty of stories that they go one. I feel one extreme or the other about it. Yeah, about how it needs to be handled. But yeah, this one was. Every time you think you're done with the twists, yeah,
1: it just kept on going. This one really shocked me quite a bit.
0: I don't know what Cafod's up to now. I didn't spend too much time digging into him because I'm just like,
1: yeah, that's really. Upsetting too for a lot of reasons, but I'm I'm curious how that all has panned out for him. So maybe that's a another time we'll mm-hmm. hear more about that guy.
0: One last thing mm-hmm. was the books. So I decided because I like to use like a mix of books and articles and documentaries and yeah. stuff for research, that specifically with the books, I'm going to make like a master list. Mm-hmm. So I'm every time I use a book for research, when we launch that episode, I'll put a picture of that book in our story so I can save it to our highlights. Well, that's great. So anytime somebody's like, oh, what book did they use for Diet Love Pass? They can click yeah. onto the highlights and find it. That's a great. idea. be really easy. So yeah. that's a new thing that will hopefully have lots and lots and lots of books for people to sift through in the near future. That's a great idea. Yeah. So I love that. That's my last thing. All right. Are we going to rate today's story?
1: Well, I think we absolutely have to. So... For me.
0: It's a trifecta for me.
1: Yes, for me, I think I'm mostly uh mostly unsettled because someone could just walk into someone's house and do that. That just seems very like it's not spooky, obviously like, It feels like
0: inhuman.
1: It it does. It's very inhuman, and that's to me that's unsettling. Yeah. Just the fact that someone would do that.
0: I agree. I feel like the uh, the events of the night were very unsavory. Yes. I am unsettled at that fact. And it is also so unusual. It is. Especially in that small of a town. It is. Well, everybody's assumes to, to have assume that kind that, of a crime happen.
1: Yeah. It's a, an excessively like vicious crime.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And everybody assumed that it had to have been somebody that knew them just right. because of their status in the community and where mm-hmm. they were and all that. And it was
0: absolutely not. And that's. Just I feel like that's almost scarier. Yeah. Yeah. That
1: it can just happen. I don't like know. it's
0: unjust for somebody to like seek revenge and kill you. Yeah. There's a lot of injustice in that. Uh, most of the time. <laughs> I'm just going to mumble that one. Most of the time. Hmm. But <laughs> <laughs> case by case. No, I'm, I'm in seriousness though. Yeah. Yeah. That's not cool. But I think there's something uniquely scary about it being random.
1: Yeah. Totally uncontrollable. Totally unpredictable. Yeah. Right. That is really scary. Well, for our listeners, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling, unsavory story today. And you can let us know in the Instagram comments, Facebook comments, wherever. How do you rate this one? Is this one unusual, unsettling or unsavory to you or a mixture or however you would describe it? Because this one uh, is definitely all over the place. Very twisty. Very twisty. Also very turny. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would leave a five star review. And uh, if you would also subscribe so you don't miss another episode as well. And uh, you can follow us on all of our social media platforms at this one is a doozy. And then on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And if you would, uh, please email us at this one is a doozy at gmail.com with your personal stories, with suggestions.
0: Uh, on that note. Yeah. This story, the stock murder, because we're from Nebraska, Murdoch's not far away from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people actually recommended this one.
1: Oh, that, is that how you found at out about least,
0: it? I already knew this one. Okay, there were at least five or six that wow. recommended that I do this story. So thanks to everybody who yeah. sent us messages on that. I appreciate that. That's really cool. I totally fell down the rabbit hole reading about this one.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's just so close that it yeah it, it was
0: it was time extremely
1: to do interesting for us
0: home state sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Another doozy. Bye.